what are the underlying assumptions? What are the underlying presuppositions, preconceptions? And are those true? Let's test those. And I think that's when the whole house of cards can come falling down. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we believe big things can happen when ideas collide inside the bonds of mutual respect. We're building the town hall of the 21st century across the partisan divide. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. When most separate, we gather across color, creed, and ideology. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thank you for joining us for this God Squad program called It's a Conspiracy! About the rise of conspiracy thinking in our civic discussion. This program is part of our current season, A Citizen's Guide to Saving America. For me, this was a much anticipated event, and it did not disappoint. I have been so curious about this topic and about how good, smart people can believe some of the conspiracies that we've been hearing about lately. And once again, the panelists provide incredible insight and help us see the humanity in our fellow Americans. Before we get started, I have a quick announcement from The Village Square, and it's an exciting one. The Village Square is hiring an executive director for the Tallahassee location. And don't worry, our founder and CEO, Liz Joyner, will still be around focusing on national work. But we've realized that America needs the Village Square now more than ever. So we're looking for someone to lead the charge in Tallahassee, Florida. If saving democracy sounds like your kind of job, check out our blog post with a job description at villagesquare.us slash blog. All right, let's turn it over to our brilliant panel this time facilitated by Dr. Gary Schultz of First Baptist Church of Tallahassee. Dr. Schultz, take it away. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this discussion of the God Squad. It's a conspiracy. My name is Gary Schultz. I'm the senior pastor of First Baptist Church right here in downtown Tallahassee. It's a joy to be here with you today. This topic is especially relevant right now, but but it's always been relevant. 2,000 years ago, there was a great fire that destroyed the, the city of Rome. And right away, people started whispering to one another, what really happened? Who really did this? What, what was really behind all this? They started accusing the emperor Nero of having some nefarious plot and design well, he just wanted to clear out everyone and start the city over. Nero was up on that hill uh, playing his fiddle, watching the city burn, enjoying it the entire time. Now, looking back, we know there's no evidence that that happened. Historians still debate the exact role Nero might have or might not have played in that fire. 
but it's a great illustration of an all too human tendency that when we begin to feel vulnerable, powerless, isolated, alone, we, we are drawn to that kind of thinking. Conspiracy theories thrive. It has always been this way. And think of our current circumstances. We've been in the midst of a pandemic now for, for a year, and that has led to a plethora of conspiracy theories, many of them highly publicized. Well, China manufactured this virus in a lab, or America manufactured this virus in a lab. It got out accidentally. It got out on purpose. The virus doesn't really exist. Or we all know that the virus doesn't really harm people. Or we all know that it was it's being used by people like Bill Gates or the World Health Organization for political power or, or some kind of personal gain. Think of what we hear about vaccines. Vaccines are, are contain microchips that, that will control our thoughts or, or at least track our movements. And so often these theories are just grafted onto older kinds of theories that have been around for centuries regarding all kinds of groups. It was the Jews, it was the Freemasons, it was the Illuminati, the New World Order, it was NATO. We're awash in these things. But we have to be careful not to just dismiss these as paranoid delusions or, or just the, the rantings of a subculture on the dark corners of the internet. According to a recent survey that was done by the, the Journal of Political Science, half the people in our country and almost half the people in Europe will freely admit, yes, I, I believe in at least one conspiracy theory. And that might range from something that we might look at as harmless to say that the moon landing never happened or, or something as, as, as developed and outlandish as the idea that our last several presidents were really a, an extraterrestrial reptilian race uh, sent here to, to feed on our energy and, and to harm us. And in the midst of all that conspiracy thinking, we know communities of faith, of course, are not exempt. A recent survey from LifeWay Research just of, of Protestant pastors asked them if they believed conspiracy theories were prevalent in their church. 49% said, yes, I, I hear of them often. And of course, none of us can go on social media without being bombarded by things that we know aren't true. And so our discussion today is going to focus on what draws people to conspiracy theories how concerned we should be, and, and ultimately how our faith ought to inform this type of thinking and how we can engage and, and continue to, to minister to people uh, in the midst of so much conspiracy thinking in our, our culture today. And so with that, would like to introduce the other members of our panel. Uh, we'll start with, with Father Tim. Go ahead and, and introduce yourself. Hello, um, I'm Father Tim. Good to see everybody, or I can't really see you, but good to be seen, I guess is what I should say. I'm the priest at, one of the priests at the Co-Cathedral of St. Thomas More in Tallahassee. I'm down in South Florida today uh, visiting uh, seminaries uh, that our men are studying at. And so it's good to be here. Great to join you. All right. And by the way, I take that last, that's not a conspiracy about the reptilian presidents, by the way. That's <laughs> oh. Dr. Dan Lesham. Um, hello, everyone. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, thank you to the Village Square for considering me and adding me again to this amazing panel. I enjoy these conversations tremendously. I am the executive director of FSU Hillel, which is a Jewish student campus organization here at FSU. 
and I have a doctorate in Holocaust studies with a specialty in Holocaust denial. So the conspiracy theory thinking has been baked right in, and um, I'm very excited to have this conversation. Excellent. And Liz Joyner. And I am Liz Joyner, founder and CEO of Village Square. And I am delighted to be here with you all. You should know, fellow panelists, that this is only the second time in 11 years of God Squad that I've ever been on a panel. So it's fun. <laughs> Excellent. Welcome and appreciate y'all being here. As we get started in, in thinking about conspiracy theories and conspiracy thinking, what, what distinguishes conspiracy theories from other types of, of thinking? When, when you think of conspiracy theories, what comes to mind? But I would venture to say it's it's a sort of an attempt that's to kind of integrate and explain, offer some kind of a narrative, a meta narrative, if you will, to explain why the world is the way it is, why things aren't the way we think they should be. And I think it's often I think what would characterize that from a conspiracy, let's say, from something that's actually we kind of laugh at conspiracy theories and we kind of, Oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. And I think what we mean by that is that they're, they're often um, not based on, there's not a lot of evidence to support them. Um, so there's, there's kind of you know, some guesswork or some patchwork things and a couple of little signals and signs here and there that someone kind of pulls all together to form this kind of cohesive explanation for what's happening around the world or what's happening in my life. Very much so like, people that I've encountered that suffer from mental illness Mm. often will take all kinds of things that are happening in their day to day, whether it's the marquee on the bank is talking to them. And why did this person wear this shirt at this time? And, and they bring it all together um, to make this cohesive understanding of why their life is the way it is, why they can't find a job, why they suffer this, why do people act this way? It's all, everybody's out to get them. People are spying on them and so on and so forth. And it's not rooted on any evidence that any rational person would would put it all together and come to it. So it's it's a little fascinating um, why people are drawn to it. And I think that's to me at least my my theory is I think people are drawn to it because it offers this this kind of integrated, cohesive explanation, a meta narrative. Because we want that. We want to understand. We're curious. Why are things the way they are? Why is there suffering? You know, why is the government like this? Why can't we fix our problems as human beings? Um, and it's attractive to think that there's a scapegoat, there's somebody out there, a group, a person pulling the strings behind the scenes. And it also gives us a sort of Gnostic feeling of superiority. I have all the inside scoop. Everybody else is stupid. Everybody else doesn't know. I have all this power. I have all this knowledge. I'm in this secret group that knows all these things. And so that's sort of an attractive thing, I believe, too. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Like no one feels like that about yeah, about the, the planets, quantum mechanics, you know, people don't act like that, understand cosmology and things. They don't walk around kind of arrogantly, like, I have all this secret information. And I think that's another thing that differentiates it from mm. normal mm. theories. <laughs> that's true. That's interesting. It's like within the conspiratorial framework, you need someone to kind of induct you. There's a secret key to unlock the mysteries. Um, it's not something you could kind of necessarily uncover on your own. Uh, which is why, you know, one of the one of the articles that was shared in advance for this conversation really focused on a journalist who was listening in for several weeks to QAnon chat boards and was really struck by how often people's claims started with, I heard this, I heard that, like almost every utterance started with, I've heard, or it is said, or 
it's this kind of idea that we're participating in a shared narrative and absolutely one that differs from the dominant narrative and that there's an inside those who know and an outside those who don't know and who could probably never find their way to the truth. But I would say to follow up on something else that Father Haleda said, that when I was deep in studying Holocaust denial, on some level, it makes sense that it is harder to believe that the Holocaust happened than to believe that it didn't. And it is more comforting to believe that it didn't, even if in order to believe that you have to believe that a group of people made this whole thing up and convinced the whole world to go along with it for their own individual gain, which is a preposterous notion, it's still easier to think that could never have happened than that, yes, human beings did this to each other. Um, and I think, you know, with the coronavirus too, in, in many ways, it's terrifying to believe that it's real and that it's arbitrary and that, you know, a 30-year-old healthy person is not necessarily going to fare better than a 60-year-old unhealthy person. And so people grasping for security or something that would provide sureness, you know, I mean, I, as, 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 a, as a Jewish speaker on the panel, I, I did some research into, you know, the history of conspiracy theories around Jews and especially around health and epidemics. And of course, it's not surprising that you go back to, you know, one of the outbreaks of plague in the 14th century and tens of thousands of Jews were rounded up and killed throughout Europe, but especially in France, where it was believed that Jews were poisoning the wells because it was too hard to imagine that this was random and that it came from something that couldn't be seen. So I think that, you know, we're seeing some of those kinds of conspiracy theories emerge now. And I think they get it gets hung on the Jews because there's already a peg where we can sort of hang things. Those are two really incredible explanations that I, I've now learned that you don't follow Tim and Dan because they they are so brilliant about this. And I guess I would I would mainly just add that I think that sometimes when we're looking at phenomena like this, we're looking at the wrong place. And we're, you know, we're looking at the facts We're you know, we're making it a political story. It, it turns into more of the same us versus them in really unfortunate ways. And that conspiracy theories are things that are not factually true, but they are emotionally true. And they serve a really important emotional purpose for individually and as groups and as, you know, even a country sort of who, who are we together um, I think is something that people are really in need of feeling. Uh, and, and something like QAnon makes people feel like they're in it together and they are a, a part of a larger story and, it, and it's clear and it's comforting. One of the things that I found really useful in um, our years with the Village Square is the distinction between that uh, Karen Armstrong makes in the Battle for God about the difference between uh, logos and mythos. And, you know, we're a society that's very focused on knowing things that are fact, logos. But I think that the way, the place you need to look here is what is the mythos? What is, this is serving a larger narrative purpose in a very important way for, for a pretty large percentage of um, our fellow citizens. And, and we need to be paying attention to what that is if we're going to address the deeper problem and not get all hooked up into what is true or not true, although that's an important part of it. And Tim, you have something that you say about sort of the most meaningful things in 
in life, the, the wisdom of your life is very often not in the logos realm. It's in the, it's in, it's, it's the things, you know, in other ways, right? Do you remember saying that before? I think it's always so wise. Sure. But I, I love the logos because I believe in the, the logos was made flesh. I, very interested in the logos and what the ancient Greeks thought about that. But I, I, I think I understand what you mean. I mean. In my mind, the logos means the meaning of everything and the meaning of the universe. But I understand what you're saying. It's not the technical, it's not the scientific necessarily that is the most important thing that gets me out of bed every day. It's, it's the meaning. And um, I think all of us need that in our lives. And again, I think that's where conspiracies uh, or, or any kind of theory, really. I mean, again, we don't have to call it a conspiracy. I mean, any kind of Sometimes religion can serve like that for people or, or some kind of, you know, not, not to say that that makes it any less true or more true, but sometimes, you know, people can get hooked on religion, um, not for a rational reason, but because it gives them some sense of meaning in their life. I want to give one example you, you brought up. Uh, we had um, a fire in our church, you know, about two years ago. And so I experienced this firsthand where what happened was the, the man came in, he was mentally ill and he just kind of came in randomly off the street and he took, kind of a weird foreshadowing hand sanitizer. We had this giant hand sanitizer bottle mm. and, and put it all over our chairs uh, where we sit and it was up against the wall. And then he set it on fire. And thankfully it wasn't, you know, there was an, there was a lot of damage and a lot of smoke damage and so on. But what we saw, we didn't see him. We didn't know what happened. We walk in and we just see our chairs on fire. We see, uh, the, you know, somebody tried to destroy our church. And immediately the thought is someone's out to get us. Someone's persecuting us for our beliefs. Someone's, against Catholics. And even when it became apparent that this was the work of somebody who was just unstable and had no, probably didn't even, he had burned down another church in town. Apparently he's been accused of at least Hmm. people didn't want to believe it. I found that very striking. Even when they arrested him, even when they had fingerprints, people still denied the evidence before him because like, I think uh, Dr. Lesham said, they didn't want to believe that it was just some random thing. It was more interesting and exciting in some way to feel like we're under attack and there's some conflict and there's a battle and kind of, you know, instead of it just being, you know, no different than a, a, an electrical fire started, right? That's basically what it was like. This man just randomly did this. So I find that, you know, I've seen this personally with people that we can just tend to, to fall into this again, because we want something meaningful. We want something interesting. It's not as interesting if some random person just sets fire on the church on accident. It's a lot more interesting if there's some kind of, group of people out to get us, you know, we have to be afraid and arm ourselves or something that makes life more exciting and interesting. So I think in some way too, if I may throw this out there, these theories also serve as a sort of antidote to boredom that's present in our modern society. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of survival threats. Typically we do right now, perhaps uh, with the pandemic, but typically most people are living pretty comfortably. And this sort of gives us again, some excitement. I joke with people that they're going to miss the pandemic when it's over. And I don't mean that in some kind of weird, morbid way, but I just mean there's a level of intensity that this brought about that will be gone and we'll be so happy when it's over, but then we'll be kind of like, okay, back to normalcy and we'll get used to that again. And we might kind of miss the sort of challenges that came with all of this. So actually, Tim, you said something that made me want to jump on my hobby horse. And that is that I think that it's really important when we see this to not think of the process of 
of, of, of this as being about others. It's how humans reason. It's, it, we, we all use confirmation bias in our reasoning. And the more isolated we are in a like-minded group, the more we don't have disconfirmation of our beliefs. And so, you know, especially in this particular environment where everybody's so siloed, where we choose our own news, um, where we're even siloed in the siloing with a pandemic, it, those tendencies of human nature just come out. And, you know, to Gary's point that, you know, this, it happened when Rome burned and it's going to keep happening because it, it's a, it's a feature of human reasoning that we have to be aware of exists in all of us, not just those other people that we disagree with. Yeah. And I think that to build on both of you, but your, both of your last couple comments, especially thinking about the fire and the refusal to accept a mundane explanation in a lot of ways, these conspiracies are also built onto pre-existing neural pathways. They are the kind of founding myths of, you know, not as a Catholic, but I know that, you know, this the, 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 the period of martyrdom is very foundational. And this idea that to truly be a person of faith, you have to be combating this, this pressure of society to make you not be a person of faith. And so to see that grandiose meaning in the mundane does provide a kind of, uh, again, well, the fire was random, but seeing in it a kind of uh, global significance that maps onto kind of these creation myths that we have as, as our subgroups kind of gives a real sense of meaning and purpose to the moment where it's actually the explanation is much more dislocated um, in trying to give it a location. I think one way, to, and I don't know if you're going to move to this, Gary, but the way I, I try to, in my way to address these things, or like I address any kind of faulty thinking, is they go right for the premises. And the beliefs, there's a belief underneath the conspiracy normally, right? That kind of holds it all together. And, you know, I and, I, and we can pick on the right because that seems to be the one, you know, that's the most recent thing we're hearing about. And it's the one, but I, I mean, I would venture to say, and some people may not like me saying this, but from my observation, the whole Russia conspiracy or with Trump, that was a conspiracy, a bunch of strange things that, that people kind of brought together because they couldn't deal with the reality that this man had been elected president. And so they had, they couldn't have been, it had to have been rigged. It had to have been the Russians. It had to be hacking. It had to be something like that to, to make up this, something had to do. It. And that was a pretty mainstream uh, thing that was being pushed for a while. And now what we're experiencing is people who, who really believed faith in President Trump could not believe he was the savior. He was an outsider. He was going to undo everything that was bad and so on. And anything that went wrong was never his fault. It's everybody else's fault. It's the media, it's the Democrats and so on. And, and, and then he loses and well, he couldn't have lost. It had to have been rigged. It had to have been a cheating. It had to be something going on. Um, and so then even when he's out of office, these people believe in him so much that no, he's actually still in office. You know, the, the, the military is in charge now. And it's just a matter of time. He's going to come right back in on his white horse. But where, so where does this really come down to? Because you have these things that kind of bump against each other, which is often what happens with these theories. On the one hand, you have people who are very against the vaccine. They think, like you said earlier, uh, microchips are being installed and so on and so forth. Then, but Trump promoted this. <laughs> so which one is it? You know, like it. And then I've heard people even so then they have to connect to gymnastics to explain that, well, Trump promotes the vaccine because he wants everybody to see how bad the vaccines are. I mean, so anybody normally anybody can see it. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't follow any logical sense. 
but you have to you have to keep your premises intact that he's this great person this great leader right and so the, i think the the question then is the attack or to i mean the method to address this sort of thinking is what are the underlying assumptions what are the underlying presuppositions preconceptions and are those true let's test those and i think that's when the whole house of cards can come falling down so recognizing you know as we've discussed both the the prevalence of conspiracy thinking and knowing that there is a tendency in us as human beings to do this and yet some of the the negative things that drive this kind of thinking how concerned should we be i mean how how dangerous are uh, conspiracy conspiracy theories or conspiracy thinking you know how should we help people to to work through these things it's interesting to think about that question. Um, one of my uh, experiences several years ago within my studies of comparative genocide took me to Rwanda, where, as, as many of you would know, it was kind of a civil war. One group in society that was the dominant group took on a minority group um, and managed to murder you know, nearly a million people in the period of three months, basically hand to hand. And so... What happened is that, as opposed to like Jews in Germany, after the genocide, the same two groups had to try to rebuild the country. So how do you try to turn on a dime and say, whatever 50 years that came before the genocide that caused the conditions to be right, we need to, within the next 12 months or the next two years, turn that around so that it can't happen again? Because the same people who were neighbors are going to go back to being neighbors. And so... One of the first things that they did as a country to try to change the conditions of possibility so that genocide couldn't recur was to establish debate clubs in cities across the country Mm. because they felt that there was too much a cultural sense of uh, listening to authority that was manipulated uh, during the genocide by people in authority, whether in political authority or, you know, populists on the radio who were, you know, calling the Tutsis cockroaches or you know, things like that, that people were taking that on faith to abuse that term. They were, they didn't have it sort of in their cultural DNA to challenge and contest the information that they were being given. And so I think that, yes, conspiracy thinking is incredibly dangerous, as 2000 years of Jews in Christian Europe shows us. And I think that one of the ways out of it is to teach people to be critical and to discourage uncritical acceptance of beliefs wherever it happens. And to think about where it's even the most difficult is on questions of faith. How do you encourage people to be critical and to question when it's not something necessarily verifiable through research? And I think that that's that's the, the obligation that faith leaders have to try to help people find that way in which believing in the good is different from believing in a conspiracy. And I think that the more, you know, even in this context, that we can articulate some of those elements, I think this is a kind of cultural conversation that we need on the level of an immediate intervention, on a crisis level, just like we need the vaccine uh, on a crisis level. Mm. This is another kind of vaccine. Yeah, I I would add to that uh, the idea that I think that we need to respond to the emotional message that as is being sent that we should be hearing and and address that. So what we're hearing is I don't feel uh, you know a place in this society. I don't feel like I feel like I'm under siege. 
I, I feel lonely and isolated, and this helps me feel a part of something bigger. Uh, Dan had pointed out that the QAnon slogan is where we go one, we, where we go all. That's an incredibly powerful thing. And it's saying something that's emotionally true and really important for us as a society is people who are feeling that way need to feel a part of, of who we are and what we're doing. So, so often then we do the exact opposite of what it is we need to do to change this. So, you know, we talked about cancel culture last program. So we say, what you said is so objectionable to me that I'm not going to talk to you. You are gone. Uh, vamoose. Uh, the, the opposite is what is actually healing is when you move towards them. And for everyone in your life, and, and probably many of us have a, somebody that we know, you know, who's expressing conspiratorial thinking like that, uh, to respond emotionally to them is to say, hey, you know, when when it's safe, let's go have lunch. Let's just hang out. Uh, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to make you feel worse about what you believe. I'm just going to be a human with you. Mm-hmm. And there's a great example of of a gentleman who took a, that sort of approach on, which is, uh, you know, if there's science behind it, it's called the contact hypothesis. That, that, you know, simply by having positive contact with people you disagree with, it's very quickly humanizing. And it's a lot of the um, philosophy behind the Village Square. And this gentleman, Daryl Davis, he is a Black musician who took it upon himself to address racial hatred by befriending um, members of the Klan. And he, you know, if you, um, he's done a TED Talk, you can look it up, and he's done some writing. What that man had to go through to befriend some of these people was just extraordinary. And but he stayed with them. He didn't. It wasn't about changing your mind. It was about connecting as humans. And as they left the clan, um, they gave him their robes and he has 200 clan robes. So that is that is changing the world. Now, I'm not recommending that, you know, don't do this at home, kids. But I do think that too often we do the opposite of what actually can help address the problem we have. I want to echo what both of you are saying. That's exactly, you said the, the cure for the, the issue in Rwanda was these debate rooms. And that's where I think some of the danger comes in with what we've seen happen with Twitter or uh, Parler or any of these kind of forums where people were discussing this. And I know there's a balance. We have to worry about safety and and. How do you know how does how do we do that right? But I can tell you that for certain that by shutting down people's Twitter accounts and Facebook accounts and banning these forums has really made people think even more. The ones who are bought into this, see, there's just more evidence. They're out to get us. They're they're they're, they're trying to shut. It. We're getting more powerful, and mm-hmm. it's not putting the fire out. Maybe it's preventing it from spreading more. But there's other avenues for them. So I, I do. I always think truth has nothing to fear from error. We have nothing to fear from bad opinions. And, you know, I say even I was very educated by Dr. Lesham. I think last time we were on a panel together that I never realized that Holocaust denying is anti-Semitic. I mean, why the connection there Um, that you have to believe by being a Holocaust denier that these people (laughs) made this up for their own gain. You know, that's in the think that is anti-Semitic and the way you think that about people. Um, But I've always thought that even that should be discussed and not banned from questioning because Again, by banning it makes it seem like the Jews are there. There they are, silencing everybody. Bring it out. The evidence is there. Bring it out. Let people be convinced. Let the truth come out. 
That's very interesting. I've, I've been really heartened to see within my own community that this approach that Liz, you were talking about a minute ago has been happening more and more. So it happened, I think just this week or last week that a professional basketball player from Miami, you know, shared some video online in which he used the slur kike, which is an anti-Semitic slur, which he says he didn't know was an anti-Semitic slur. It didn't come out in the context of a, of a Jew he was attacking. He was just playing a video game and called someone that in the game. And you know, the immediate response is always, tip or typically, let's put pressure on the team to sanction him or do this and that. And recently, it's been a trend within the Jewish community where some subset of the community in whatever city an incident like that takes place immediately reaches out and invites that person to a Shabbat dinner, to a Friday night dinner with them, not to discuss politics, not to chastise them, not to change the error, not to correct the error, but to say, come sit down and have dinner with us. I, th I think maybe you don't know you know, Jews, you don't know who Jews are or what they believe or what they care about. Let's let's try this. That's so inspiring and hopeful. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and building on that, I mean, and that's a good example of, of where I wanted to take us next. What role should we play as communities of faith, as people of faith, leaders of faith in, in engaging with people uh, with with conspiracy thinking? What what unique things can we do? That's interesting. And I want to complicate it by asking, like, how do we, how does that happen both within our faith community? So there are certain elements of the Jewish community, for instance, that have embraced certain conspiracy theories around coronavirus and around the vaccine. So how do I address other Jews? And how do I address non-Jews about the conspiracies that put Jews in some kind of a role mm. uh, within the within the vaccine? So I think I would like to amplify your question sure. by wondering if there's not like a dual role, like how do we talk to people within our group and how do we talk to people outside of our groups? And I'd say absolutely. I mean, just, just to, to respond to that, you know, we, we have an obligation, you know, as, as Baptists, we would put it both toward the church and witness toward the world. I mean, and, and those are always dual responsibilities that, that we have. And I, I think it's incumbent upon us, you know, judgment begins in our own house, in that sense, to where we we do address that, where, where we do build those opportunities for community, where we try to, as much as we can in our polarized society, to bring people together who might have different backgrounds and different political understandings, different ethnicities, whatever it is. Of course, as a church, we want to bring them together on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want, we want them to get to know one another and then show that witness uh, to the world of what that means. And so there, there's always that, that dual responsibility. I think that's an important point to, to point out. What, what are other things that we can do? Well, again, I just, I'd not be afraid of discussing it, you know, and talking about, you know, there's, I have a lot of friends who question uh, whether the virus uh, has really killed this many people. And is there some kind of conspiracy with hospitals and they're all hiding their numbers or changing the cause of death because they get more money or something like that. But you can't, unless I guess you question the source of all data or whatever, I mean, but then what do we believe anyway? I don't know, but you can't argue with the excess mortality numbers that have happened in this last year. You, you have to explain that somehow. And even if it was people lying about coronavirus, you have to account for this enormous excess. Something has happened here in the last year. A lot more people have died than normal. If anything, it's been underreported. Because there's more people dying than we than we know of of coronavirus, it doesn't add up. So showing people those sort of facts 
reasonable people will see that and say, okay, you know, I have to, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't true. Again, I think it goes back to how do we, we have to attack those premises. We have to attack those, or maybe not attack is the best word to use, but we have to kind of confront and engage those underlying beliefs and using truth, using facts and allowing people to observe it themselves. That's another thing, come to their own conclusions and, and, and trust humanity. I, I trust people. I, I try to treat people as reasonable, mature and responsible until they prove otherwise, you know, and, and assuming that people, yeah, when they see the truth, they'll recognize it, you know? So I'm trying not to, again, not to be afraid, not to silence people, but to try to engage and, and have discussions. I, I get one quick example of a seminary I visited recently in Louisiana where, that we're going to be sending our students to. I asked them, there's some conspiracies within the Catholic church as well. Um, and division within the Catholic church, big surprise. And I asked them, how are you dealing with this, this movement that's kind of around? Is it in the seminary? And they said, yes. And I said, how do you deal with it? And they said, we discuss it. We talk about it. And that made me very happy to know that that's a very healthy way of addressing these things. Instead of being like, well, we don't allow anybody to talk about this, or we don't allow anybody to have these conversations. So they, they, hmm. Let's have a conversation. Let's discuss it. Let's debate it. And I think that's the most healthy way. I just wanted to raise one thing and wonder aloud, just I just am introducing something. I'm not offering any answers, but one of the things that's been very sad for me to realize recently is how Jewish houses of worship used to differentiate themselves by their approach to certain dogma or their approach to certain observance practices. But I find more and more of them, like on the front page of their website, are defining themselves by political leanings. So to your wish, Tim, that into your proposed solution that we could all get together and discuss things, and to Liz's comments earlier, are we getting together in ever smaller and more similar groups in order to discuss things? Is that happening in your churches as well as as, as what I'm noticing within the Jewish kind of faith? Yeah, boy, boy, ever. And in fact, that was uh, part of what the comment I was going to make as well. I, I think that um, some people who maybe aren't involved in faith communities and who are more center and center left leaning may not really understand how hard it's become if you're conservative or a person of faith and or some combination of those to be a part of, of the public square. And it's something I've learned because of the work that I've done and my politics are center left and over the years, I have watched um, trying to have these conversations through the eyes of conservatives, and we we have made it very, very hard. And in some ways, that's the reason that uh, God Squad exists, is because at the beginning, we thought, you know, we, we want to make sure that we're building a rich public square that invites everyone in exactly who they are. So we're just going to come right at it and not say, you know, this is just for, for you know, we're, we're going to keep this conversation secular or not. We're going to invite everyone in. And I think it's important to maybe take stock of conversations that you're involved in, in sort of public spaces and ask yourself, are they welcoming to conservatives to come as they are and say what they need to say? And I have learned over the years, I actually can't comfortably anymore spend time in an ideologically similar group, even though my ideology is still pretty similar. And it's be it's because it's flat, because I know we're saying things and deciding things that are very um, uh, sort of one side of the elephant. We're not looking at the whole because we don't have that ideological diversity in the room with us. And as a result, we're making it harder and harder 
to to become healthy kind of in this space. And and so I think that that's a really important, I think faith communities play an incredibly important part of getting to the right place in this um, because the public square probably isn't going to really do it. Um, And then I also wanted to mention, I can look and see if I can pop it into the um, chat for people. I saw um, a Muslim writer writing for Atlantic interviewed like a day or so ago, and his article was about if we make if we make the public square and civics a place that doesn't invite people of faith into it, maybe that's part of what is going on here. And that, you know, I would even argue that faith communities are very well set up to create the kind of glue and ballast in people's lives that they seem to be missing, not even talking about what your your, your faith beliefs are. And so, you know, we may have you know, sort of in pursuit of rationality, his argument is, and mine would be too, we've accidentally created conditions that in fact grow irrationality. Mm. You know, there is a, uh, a quote, Joseph Vale, uh, the co-creator of a popular science uh, fiction podcast called Welcome to the Night Vale. It, it's developed around this idea that there's a desert town and they live there and all the conspiracy theories that are out there are actually true. And so it's a a science fiction podcast, but he has this quote where he says, conspiracy theories act in a similar way as religious stories. They give you an explanation and a structure for why things are the way that they are. We're in a great awakening of conspiracy theories. And like any massive religious movement, the same power it has to move people also is easily turned into a power to move people against other people. And so how how should we work recognizing some of those those similarities? How can we work to to differentiate faith from conspiracy thinking and then in, engage from a healthy perspective of of truth and grace? I would just question really quickly the premise that, you know, conspiracy thinking and religious thinking were ever entirely separate from each other. I think that all religious traditions, up to today, uh, you know, are very wise on certain things and are very accepting of shorthand on other things. And I think that that shorthand is often a conspiracy theory or the kernel of a conspiracy theory. And so I think that it's not like to reestablish the separation, but it's actually the proactive effort to kind of find and remove those elements from religious thinking that allow those kinds of uh, conspiracy. I mean, look, the conspiracy that Jews killed Jesus was lasted for almost 2000 years within the Christian church. So it, it's not so much, you know, let's go back to the golden age. It's it's let's build back better. Let's let's use this opportunity to challenge some things that have got that have lain dormant. I, I tried to, from our faith tradition, to try to help people embrace reality on some level. The history is full of, of especially for Christians and, and Jews and everybody. I mean, everybody's experienced suffering in some way. I just think of, uh, you know, our, our history as, as Christians is, is, is some persecution. And I know I'm not trying to compare it to what the Jewish experience has been at all. Or, um, But I'm just saying I know it's, it's part of our faith and our gospel that we must be prepared to suffer persecution. And so when, it, when people trying to help people to see, like, well, even if these, you know, these things are, are happening to us. Like 
this is what are we what are we to expect? This is what we were promised um, on some level from our beliefs as and as a Christian. And I'm trying to teach people just to kind of are to have a realistic understanding of life too. I look at in the Jewish tradition. I know with the exile, uh, there was a theological interpretation of why did this happen? Why does the Babylonian exile happen? Because they didn't follow the law. They weren't faithful to God, and so this was their punishment. And then they also had a theological interpretation of Cyrus the Persian coming and conquering and then liberating them and bringing them back home. So to see also that here are these, these, these bad events on some level, uh, when we interpret them through the eyes of our faith, they can help us make sense of them and they can help us embrace it and deal with it. Mm. Well said. I think that's, I think that's true. But I also think like just within the Jewish faith, there have been some Jewish religious leaders that are trying to explain the, tragedy of the coronavirus, but put forward preposterous and unacceptable kind of theory. So it's not that every theological explanation is equally useful or helpful. Um, many times they are, you know, and sometimes, you know, there was a rabbi many years ago who caused a lot of controversy in trying to explain the Holocaust, that there was a theological discussion that said, you know, the Holocaust also was some kind of punishment for the Jews for assimilating into European culture too much or whatever it is. And the objection was raised, what about the hundred, uh, what about, was it one million children who died? What, what sin was their murder and suffering for? And one rabbi speculated, well, there, there must have been some sin. It's impossible to imagine that they could have died without it. So this is giving a kind of theological attempt at explanation that's, that's just like on its face patently offensive, at least to me. So I think that there are kind of helpful theological interpretations, and then there are those overstretching ones. And I don't know how we kind of develop a blueprint for, you know, one versus the other. Within our faith traditions, how do we accept certain views and reject certain other views? And that builds on to a question we received, in fact, that almost that same question. How do we respond when two sets of facts are presented and two presenters both believe that they're right? What's our response at that point? Well, I, th- I think what's, I'm very fascinated by the fact that people don't agree with me on everything. <laughs> I, I find it amazing that people have. <laughs> it's, a con- it's a conspiracy. I mean, I'm just. It is hard to believe. It's a real cross in my life that I have to carry a burden, you know? So, but because of the, I have that fascination, and I mean that not, not in the sense I've actually find it hard to believe, but I, I am very fascinated by it um, because I want to know how did these people arrive at these conclusions that are different than mine, whether it's an atheist or you know, different political beliefs or whatever. And this really serves me well over, over the years to really be interested in people and to be interested in why they disagree. So I could feel extremely strong about a particular thing, uh, whether it's something in politics or even religion or philosophy or whatever. And if I come across somebody who has a completely different understanding I have to start with the fact that, you know, this, again, I trust humanity on some level. So this person, you know, seems to have a a working mind. How did they come to this conclusion? I want to examine and and investigate their premises and and their reasons why they came to this conclusion. I want to understand that. And I feel like that I can get something from that. And it also keeps me humble to realize that I look just like they look to me. Like if I think to myself, that guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. How could he come up with that? I look exactly like that to them. So how do we really address, like, I want to make sure I'm not him or, or how I'm characterizing him. I want to, or her, 
So I, that's the thing. I mean, it invites me then to dialogue. It invites me to be curious about other positions, which ultimately leads to me kind of reforming my own viewpoints or, or in, in, in the end, strengthening them in some way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think humility is such a big part of this. And it's something that we're not doing culturally right now. It's like, we just think that we're right about everything. And that's such an incredible um, position and completely incorrect in all cases. And I think that just sort of the idea that um, there's a great John Stuart Mill quote that I don't have right here, so he would have said it better, but essentially that, you know, even if your side is 90% right about something, there's something that you're going to learn from speaking and interacting with somebody who doesn't see it your way. You're going to see into the, the the parts that you forgot to think about. Like, I think the the quote is something like, you're right in what you affirm, but wrong in what you deny. So the things that are your blind spots. And so you learn something from that. And I would even argue that we've sort of forgotten our own idea as a country because the whole idea of, of American democracy and how we're structured is that uh, we don't need a king because we're going to fulfill the, that purpose with each other. And we're going to stay in contact with each other. Even when we completely disagree, we keep doing that. And that's part of being able to tolerate each other and seeing each other as humans, but it's also part of solving problems. You don't solve problems well if you just do it with half a vision. Mm. And I think there's one quick caveat that I'd like to add in that's always been helpful to me that one of my great teachers, Deborah Lipstadt, used to insist on that, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own facts. And I think that it's, it is important that we differentiate and, you know, her insistence that you actually can't have a dialogue with someone who insists on their own set of facts. You need that basis in like, okay, I'm gonna accept that this happened because it's met a certain threshold of facticity. But if you insist that this, that you know, day is dark and night is bright, that there actually isn't enough common ground. And I think that we've kind of blurred that distinction so that we think we can't have disagreements about opinion because we don't really clearly identify what are the facts in the first place. Well, and, and building on that, I, I think of, a, of an article, David French, in addressing conspiracy thinking, particularly among evangelical Christians, who makes what I think is a very important point that if you just begin a, attacking someone's position, and I use that word attacking, it doesn't, that might not be what we're te- uh, intending to do. We're just presenting facts. But if it comes across as attacking, you've instantly set it up so that there will be no dialogue that's possible. And instead, working on developing and and extending that relationship so that there's a basis of trust Mm -hmm. so that you can actually begin to speak into somebody's life. But that also requires that you let them speak into your life, that that there is a kind of relationship, uh, because we want to get to the place where we can can share facts, where we can share truth. Going in a slightly different direction, we received another good question. As a Bible study teacher, I regularly warn the class about the dangers of views and opinions being unduly shaped by social media. It has incredible power over the masses. Considering the conspiracy theories so widely prevalent on social media, how do we combat this, seeing how it's essentially a daily part of people's lives now? Well, I tell everybody to get off social media all the time. So that's an easy answer, I guess. I'll take that route. <laughs> Maybe that's a simple one and not a realistic one, but I think if people spent less time on it, I think they wouldn't be thinking about it all the time and get sucked into that world. Hey, I'll give you a better example. I do a little stock investing on the side. 
uh, just for fun. And there's a, there's a page that's called stock twits. And if I go on that page and read about a stock, it's all these people saying different things. I don't know if these people have $5 or a million. <laughs> and I find myself being swayed emotionally. Oh my gosh, this is, I got to sell this thing or, oh my gosh, I should buy more. And depending on how I'm reading this, and I just imagine, so I, I've learned like, don't pay attention to how you're feeling when you're reading this. This is just, you can get some good information here and there, but it's, you know, this is people's opinions and it's not trustworthy. So I find that I have to imagine in social media and Twitter and, and all that, it's the same thing. If you're reading over and over again, all these people, it can create this sense and you plan your emotions. And again, something as attractive as in the stock world, you know, making money or something, being successful there, or and this in this conspiracy realm we're talking about having having an answer to all the problems, having this narrative, having meaning and so on. And you have this swarm of people saying the same things and repeating each other. You know, I think that can be so the more we limit ourselves, and it makes me think critically and it makes me think rationally. And so when I get away from the stock twits page, I have to go back to my own, okay, what are my reasons for doing what I'm doing? in this investment or something like that. Yeah. And don't call me for investment advice because I'm quite the amateur. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really interesting that I think that human beings are hardwired for narrative and to understand the world through stories. And it's kind of like anyone who studies Greek drama knows about the role of the chorus. That's kind of the stand-in for the community that kind of is, while the drama's happening, the chorus is telling you how to feel about that drama. And I think that what's happened in social media, and I see it also, for instance, in comments, like in YouTube comments, what we used to call Web 2.0, the whole interactive aspect of digital technologies. So, you know, within Holocaust denial, you know, I'd find videos of like a high school student who did a project, five minute video on the Holocaust for school, and you would have 4,000 comments questioning whether or not the Holocaust really happened. Now, like Father Tim is saying, that has the power of a chorus it plays on us. It, it makes us think like that the community has rejected a certain position. Um, you know, this is similar with Amazon reviews until you find out that like these companies are paying people to write thousands of reviews, or in fact that the thousand reviews is actually just one person who keeps changing their username. Yeah. But I think that, you know, I would always say within Holocaust denial that the deniers were always way more adept at using the technologies than the people presenting the historical fact. They could also use much snappier slogans and everything else. So that in a lot of ways, it's easier to share a lie than it is to, to share the truth. I think that faith mm. teachers know that. And I think that the, this issue about the disconnect between the story and the person sharing it is what's so scary about the power of social media. So I would say, if you want to know about a stock, sit down with someone who does stock investing, get that, hear it from a person because you get so much more contextual clues and you learn so much more about what it means to be a human. Whereas I think you learn nothing from that kind of social media echo chamber. And in fact, you kind of forget a lot that you already knew about the stakes of humanity and interaction and being with others. So again, if you want to know what a conservative thinks, don't hop on QAnon, go find a conservative and sit them down uh, and have co buy them a cup of coffee. I think that it's, it's, it's crucial that once COVID's done, we find the public square again. It seems like we have either given up or just accepted that nowadays that is in this dislocated space of social media and internet communications. Yeah. Do we have time for one more question? All right. 
and I think this is a good one. How do you discern when it is wise to speak up or when it's better not to say anything? Sometimes it's easier to say nothing, but I don't want to apply that I agree with someone just because I remain silent. So I think I'd offer up the observation that questions are amazing things. That I, I saw them described as a, a lantern that lights the way. Is I think asking people about their experience quickly does things that you'd be surprised that it does. For for one thing, you know more, right? But for another thing, I think that uh, humans are also incredibly reciprocal. Uh, and so very often, if you want to know who they are and where they are and what matters to them, they'll want to know the same thing about you. And that's a great place to start. You know, when you start with that, when you begin focusing on people's humanity and not their politics to begin with, things shift in surprising ways more quickly than one would think. It's, it's really a more powerful dynamic than it seems like it ought to be. So start with the beginning is ask questions and care about them and let it be okay that they see things very differently than you do and then go where that takes you. And also while, I, while I've got the mic, I guess I want to um, say quickly that I also had listened to the Rabbit Hole podcast and I think it's a good thing to listen to because when you do, you'll kind of think, you know, this makes sense that people find themselves in a space where they're believing conspiracy theories. And also, let's see, to Suzanne's question, she asked about whether um, Village Square would organize an event where participants from different points of view engage in discussion on polarizing topics. And we've actually really talked about doing something like that. And also even just sort of a um, like a free speech podium where you have an opportunity to share what you think and then have an opportunity to interact. So, you know, contact me. I'm all ears about those ideas. I think I think you have to exercise prudence um, on when to speak and when not, and so it's hard to say. That there's a simple rule for me. I just try to gauge like, is this really worth engaging or not? Do I have the time for it? And lots of other variables that I just have to make a split decision. Um, I'll say that I try to take everything seriously. I mean, if somebody came to me and said they saw, you know, Bigfoot in the in the neighborhood. You know, I wouldn't immediately be. I mean, I, of course, I'd be a little concerned. You know, maybe this person's not well, but I would. I'd also be very concerned if there really was a Bigfoot running around my neighborhood. So I want to at least find out, like, what makes you think this? So if someone comes to me and tells me that, you know, the Vatican uh, and the Masons and the Jews are all conspiring together. Well, that's a very important thing to know if that's the truth. So I want to know well, what, what makes you think that. And by the way, I do the exact same thing when people who are mentally ill come to me and want to talk about why is there people spying on me and all this other stuff. I don't just write them off. I so well, maybe they are. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't think so. But let me ask you, like, so what makes you think that this person is wearing that shirt has anything to do with you or this, this thing's being said on TV has anything to do with you and, and try to entertain it in some level. And hope again, hopefully now with somebody's mentally ill, they won't probably come out of that, but I find that more healthy than saying, you know, that's, that's just crazy or don't believe that or something like that. I mean, if we're really going to take it seriously, we have to sit down and really analyze it and look at it. I mean, I want to know if there's, if you would want to know if there was a Bigfoot in your neighborhood, I think it'd be irresponsible to say, no, it's not true. And just go back inside. I mean, you need to know. Well, I think that's probably a great note to, uh, <laughs> to end it on. No, I appreciate the, the three of y'all participating with that. We'll, we'll turn it over to Liz. She's got a, a few things that, uh, and, and she'll wrap it up for us. Yeah. So I just wanted to thank you all for being a part of the conversation and this year's 
unusual digital God Squad. It's it's been fun and different. And I wanted to thank everyone out there. Our, I I really more than you know, we do a lot of digital programs now. It's funny how my reaction when we get to God Squad, it's it feels like it's a family event. And I think it's because we've spent 11 years building a God Squad family. And and I I think that's something in a time like this that really matters, that's important to preserve and respect. And and we thank all of you out there and all of you right here who I can see for being a part of that. I think that we're in a world that needs a lot of God Squad. I also want to express optimism that we're very much hoping that we can do programs in person by next fall at some point in time and that we'll see your um, sweet faces again um, and that probably we'll continue to do some sort of digital um, digital uh, presence because we've learned that it serves a purpose in the world and that we've been able to reach out to lots of people um, outside of Tallahassee with it. And so um, we will do both and we're looking forward to seeing you all again soon and thank you all. Have a wonderful weekend. Bye everybody. Hello again, it's Vanessa, your podcast host. I hope you enjoyed this program as much as I did. If you're like me, maybe you're even feeling more hopeful and calm. A huge thank you to our panelists for sharing their thoughts and helping us to understand our neighbors a bit better. This was another program that caused a pretty big shift in me. Almost a month passed between when I heard it live and when I started working on this episode And it made me realize just how much my thoughts have shifted in that time. The disbelief and confusion and even sometimes anger that I felt when talking about this before has subsided. And now I think about this issue in a totally different way. Instead of having judgy thoughts directed at individuals, I've started looking at it more from a big picture perspective. And on that note, here's a little confession. One thing that annoys me so much is Band-Aid solutions, when we fix symptoms of problems instead of looking at the root causes. But I realized during this program that sometimes it's not clear to me when there even is underlying root causes. So a light bulb went off as I was listening to this program, and when they started talking about the other things going on in our society that lay the groundwork for some of the conspiracy theories we're seeing now. That makes so much sense to me, and it's another reminder of the damage that comes from the us versus them, good versus evil narrative that's growing so much around us. And that's why this bridge building work is so important. So now I'd like to recognize you for being a valuable part of this movement to help save America. It may not seem like it every day, but you really are in good company with so many others around the country diving in to do this hard and important work. So thank you for being here with us and for being part of the solution. We've got a great lineup of programs to come on Village Squarecast, so please make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at villagesquare.us slash squarecast. That's also where you can find the show notes page, and we've got some links to resources discussed in this program. And to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square, including our live programs, sign up for our newsletter at villagesquare.us. We appreciate you listening to It's a Conspiracy with the God Squad. 
And we'd be so grateful if you drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon. And thank you so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.